This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions to provide you information that you can trust will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by the Catholic Church. In this episode, we'll cover some medical news, a preventive medicine tip of the day, and the medical trivia that's not trivial. And then we'll have an interview today with Dr. Andrew Mullally. I'm on the hot seat today. He is in the hot seat about the influenza vaccine and about all things flu. And at the end, we'll have the answer to the medical trivia question of the day, uh, as well as some other interesting material, including email questions from our listeners. But first up, medical news from Andrew. Medical news today in the news. I was looking through different uh, medical news stories recently, and one of them caught my eye about a recent study done in New York City. They looked at two different emergency rooms, and their question was about pain control. For people who present to the emergency room in pain, what is the best way to treat their pain? And they took two groups of people. They took a group of people where they gave them the the standard treatment, which is usually a form of an opiate, whether it be something like Vicodin or another medicine in that same family to reduce the pain. So is an opiate like a narcotic? We might hear that term too. It it would be equivalent. A narcotic is kind of a police officer term, and it has to do with the criminality of it. An opiate's more the scientific family, but you can think of them equivalently. And they're really in the news a lot lately because of the opioid epidemic. Yes. I mean, that is huge here in Indiana. They're trying to pass laws about it because so many people are getting addicted to it. Well, this this particular study I was intrigued in because I did a lot of ER work, especially in my training, and they compared a group of folks getting opioids and a group of folks where they gave them Tylenol and ibuprofen instead of opioids. And this was for a variety of types of pain when people presented to the ER. So yeah. what, what kind of pain would this be? You know, anything from, you know, most commonly you would think of a musculoskeletal type pain, whether it be a bruise, fracture, back pain, common things like that. Could be pain also associated with lacerations or headaches, uh, really any number of things. And the question was, is what's the best way to treat these people? And are, are we doing a good job with the standard of care? And I was really intrigued to find that both groups really had a very similar reduction in pain. They asked them, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, like doctors are always asking you. <laughs> we like numbers. And people, they, they, most people started at a 9 when they came into the ER. And after two hours of treatment, no matter which group they were in, they both came down to a 5. Wow. And so it was totally equivalent whether they were getting the powerful stuff with all of the side effects or the over-the-counter Tylenol and Motrin. And so I thought this was really intriguing because physicians, we want to help, you know. And so when people are in pain, it's a natural desire to try and alleviate that pain. But we might have been going about it the wrong way. And that could explain at least partly why we don't need to prescribe so many opiates that has been contributing to this epidemic. That's fascinating. And you're right. I I do facial cancer surgery and reconstruction every day. And so many of my patients are worried about pain. And on certain types of repairs, it would be my norm to give them a short course of a narcotic, hydrocodone, for instance. But I saw this study recently, and we've started having our patients use the alternating acetaminophen or Tylenol and ibuprofen or the brand name Motrin or Advil. And it's much safer and a lot of people get sick on opioids, don't they? They do, especially for folks that have never had them before. There's loads of side effects between being nauseous, sick to your stomach, and then constipation. But, I mean, one of the overarching things is, is that we've got an epidemic where folks are using too many, and they're really abusing them. They're not taking them as prescribed. Especially here in Indiana, there's a couple of telling statistics that I've seen recently where greater than 1 in 20 people admitted to abusing opiates last year. Wow. So that's a significant number of people who are taking them not because they were prescribed by a doctor. They're either buying them on a street or using one of their friends. It's really becoming one of the new kind of gateway drugs. And that's why even in Indiana alone last year, there was over 750 opioid overdose deaths. 
So that's why this is making the news so much. Most people, if not directly affected, they know someone who's been affected by this. And the trouble is, is that a lot of times it starts with a simple prescription from a doctor for a good reason, but then really through very little fault of their own, frequently people do become dependent on this. It, it helps take away the pain, but then as a consequence, they require higher and higher dosages. Yes. And when you stop it, then a lot of times your body is craving it such that you look towards illegal ways of obtaining it. And it really becomes from just a short-term use to a dependence to an addiction. And we just see that all too frequently. The drive becomes so strong to replace that high. Whereas these other pain medicines, there, there is no such high. There is no addictive potential with acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And we got to think, you know, above all, do no harm, right? Yes, that's I, right. I review that with my patients a lot because you've got to balance the, the desire to try and alleviate the pain with the desire to not create a new problem that might be bigger than the one we're treating. Exactly. Oh, that's a common line I've used with patients through the years. I don't want the treatment to be worse than the disease. So I thought that was interesting. So the next time you might be in pain and the question comes up with your healthcare provider, what do we do? You might want to mention the study and see if they've heard of it or at least even try some of this at home maybe before you necessarily even have to seek out medical care. Yeah. In my patients, you know, we load them with usually a thousand milligrams of acetaminophen along with four or 600 milligrams of ibuprofen and then every three hours take one or the other. And that does incredibly well. But for more specific advice that's good for you, ask your doctor. And this is, if you just tuned in, Dr. Doctor, radio show where we have trustworthy medical information for Catholics. Now Andrew's going to share with us his patented preventive medicine tip of the day. Okay, everybody. This is another segment of the Preventative Care Tip of the Day brought to you by the United States Preventative Screening Task Force. And today I want to talk about mammograms. Why do I care about this and what do I need to know? Here's the top three things you need to know about mammograms. The USPS TF actually recommends people get mammograms, women, above the age of 40 every one to two years to detect breast cancer. But this is not without controversy, as most of us know from looking on television. So number one, the average risk of breast cancer is about one in eight. Eight women, one of them will get breast cancer. Things that make you more likely to would be a family history of breast cancer, taking birth control pills or hormone replacement, or even having an induced abortion. Things that would decrease your risk of having breast cancer would be having children early and often actually reduces the risk of <laughs> breast cancer with every child and the earlier you start and as Dr. well Mulally's as And Dr. wife is practicing that with the help of Dr. Mulally. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is something that is preventative and they don't usually tell you about that in health class in high school. So Andrew, when you say one in eight women, is that a lifetime risk? Lifetime risk of ever getting breast cancer. Okay. And you mentioned the two things there you just kind of passed over, but really? Birth control pills and abortion? Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, especially with the birth control pills or even hormonal replacement, which is something that's morally acceptable to do, an increase of estrogen and hormones around the breast for a longer period of time lead to higher risk of breast cancer. So, you know, if, if you even think about it, you know, some of the people who are at very high risk, not because of pills for any reason, but actually Catholic nuns who don't have babies, they don't breastfeed, they have much higher risk of breast cancer than married women who breastfeed and have multiple children. And so there are things you can do to, to change your risk. I'm not sure if anybody's having kids to prevent breast cancer, <laughs> but, you know, there, there is uh, just another blessing there. So number two, there's some disagreement about when to screen. Now, there's no disagreement about how to screen or the fact that screening is necessary. There's widespread agreement that you should be screening with mammograms, not using an MRI, not using ultrasound, and not using other non-medical tests like things called thermograms, which I've heard of recently, which don't have the scientific backing to really support those. But there is disagreement about how often you should be getting a mammogram. Depending on what guidelines or what society you look at, some people suggest every one year, two years, three years. I tell my patients I think they should do it every two years unless there's a reason that they're at higher risk than the average person. 
I think it's also important that women know their breasts. It's a bit controversial, actually, self-breast exams. The USPSTF, in other news, recommends against it because women find things that are not breast cancer and they end up doing too many tests on them. So what we would call false positives. That's correct. And so that's a whole nother segment, which we'll, we'll do eventually. But the, I tell women, you know, you're going to be the best judge of what's normal and what's abnormal about your breasts. So number three, as far as radiation, mammograms have very little radiation, and I would say that they are definitely safe. I get this question brought up to me a lot when we're talking about preventative care. Breast cancer is caused by many things, but one of them is radiation. Mammograms have radiation. Doesn't that cause breast cancer? And I think we've got a, a lot of halfway ideas there. We do know that medical radiation causes cancer, but it's not the mammograms, tell you the truth. A mammogram, if you get down to the nitty-gritty physics of it, it has about 0.4 millisieverts of radiation in a dose. Which means? Which means... (laughs) Every day walking around, you never have an x-ray, never have anything at all, just the background radiation from Earth. Yes. You get about three millisieverts a year. So that's going to be about seven times as much as a mammogram just from being alive every year. For example, a transatlantic flight has more radiation than even a chest x-ray. Okay. And so the people who are really getting hurt by the medical radiation are people who get things like CAT scans multiple times. Even one CAT scan, it's about equivalent to 30 to 40 times the amount of radiation of a mammogram. So you could get one CAT scan, and that would be still more than mammograms for your entire life. And even the people who get CAT scans are not the people who are in trouble. That's the patients who get CAT scans, you know, 10, 15 a year. And I know these people. Those are the people who are going to suffer. So it's safe. You should do it every two years. Talk to your doctor. Mammograms. Top three things. That's very good to know. It's a big killer among women, a lot of morbidity or damage among women. It's an excellent thing to know about. And for today's medical trivia, that's not trivial question, if you have a history of an allergy to penicillin, should you never receive a penicillin family antibiotic or an antibiotic in the related family known as cephalosporins? And this is something that happens often. We have many patients who say they're allergic to penicillin. Does it mean they should never again receive penicillin or another antibiotic related to that? Ooh, that's a great question. And we will answer it near the end of the show. This is Dr. Doctor discussing health matters because people matter with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Malawi. We are back with Dr. Doctor. Today, I, Tom McGovern, will be interviewing my co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally, about the flu, or more formally known as influenza. God bless you, too. And Gesundheit. (laughs) You chose this topic today, Andrew. Why? You know, influenza, and specifically the flu shot, is one of the questions that I've been getting for months now flu shot comes out in October. It's one of the things that people hear about. There's a lot of controversy as far as whether you should get it, whether you shouldn't get it every year, every couple of years when you're a kid, when you're an elderly person. And so there's just so much knowledge and questions about it. I thought it'd be a great topic for the show. And I am interested in history. I find the older I get, the more I enjoy it. And I found one fascinating fact, and that is in some way World War II might be blamed on one person's case of the flu. Ooh. And that one person was President Woodrow Wilson. As you may have heard, in, in 1918 to 1919, is what they call the, the Spanish flu epidemic or pandemic. And actually, it was not any worse in Spain. It was just foisted upon them because they were a neutral country at the time of World War I. Oh, wow. Fascinating. So it really had nothing specific to do with flu. But in that one year, between 18 and 19, more Americans died that year than died in battle during World War I, 
World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. About 675,000 died that year of the flu, and only 600,000 died in those wars combined. And in that pandemic, 3 to 5% of the world population died of the flu. So the flu can be- That's pretty scary. Yes. Now, how does this one case come into causing World War II? Well, after World War I, the treaty was signed, which um, gave in to the stringent French demands for peace terms with Germany. And Woodrow Wilson caved into the French, they think, because he still had the lingering effects of his case of the Spanish flu. Had he not, there might have been milder demands upon the Germans, and they would not have tried to build up their military and their nationalism so much that then led to the rise of Adolf Hitler in World War II. Ah, I see. He was filling the void because of the demands being so stringent. Yes. Yes. He probably wouldn't have caved into making the demands so severe on the German people. So, Andrew, how common is the flu these days? Well, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think the important thing is to nail down the terms, because if I had a nickel for every time somebody's <laughs> had the flu, you know, what does that even mean? It means different things to different people. But to me, and at least from kind of the, the medical point of view, influenza is a viral infection, right? There's different yes. types of it. There's type A, type B, different subtypes. And what's a virus, Andrew? A virus, that's a great question. It is a microbe protein that causes disease. And it's different than the other types of infectious agents that we commonly talk about called bacteria that would be susceptible to antibiotics. Viruses are not susceptible to antibiotics. And they're oh, much really? More so I can't use penicillin to treat the flu or any other viral illness? Y you can, but it won't work. <laughs> so, you know. And it's true in addition to proteins, they're also made of either RNA or DNA, which is kind of the, um, the great circle of life. What makes new copies of itself. That's right. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the critical points to talk about with viral infections is with their genetic code, it's a lot different than ours, actually. And that kind of explains why the flu is different every year. So I heard my parents, whenever I got sick in the winter, oh, you've got the flu. What is the flu or the influenza, the true influenza? What is it? The true influenza is a respiratory virus that's caused by influenza type A or type B, and it represents, you know, it's manifested rather with respiratory symptoms that would be very similar to a common cold, except usually it's more severe and more prolonged. So when you say respiratory, does it just mean lungs, or is it like the upper airways in, in the throat, in the mouth? It's, it's, it would include all of the above, you know, what we call an upper respiratory infection. It could cause runny nose, it could cause body aches, um, fevers, chills, malaise, just that feeling that you can't, no get up and go. It can cause a cough, headaches. Really, your common cold type symptoms are very similar with influenza. So what's different? You know, it's really the agent. You know, they're both viruses. Usually the common cold's caused by one of really thousands of types of viruses. Frequently, you can get several colds a year because they're different viruses. Um, the influenza is caused by this specific virus, and the difference would be in not only the causative agent, but also in the severity. Whereas a common cold might frequently come and go within a couple of days or definitely less than a week, the flu frequently lasts longer and has more severe symptoms. This is Dr. Doctor pulling back the curtain on the mysteries of medicine with Dr. Tom McGovern interviewing Dr. Andrew Mullally today about the influenza and the flu vaccine. If you have a patient in front of you with these symptoms, can you tell without a test if they have influenza versus another upper respiratory virus or a common cold virus? You can suspect, but it'd be very difficult to tell with certainty. And so a lot of times people would tell me that they had the flu or, you know, I would get the flu every year or old doc so-and-so would know exactly when I have the flu. Why are you so mush-mouthed, Dr. Mullally, and not just tell me what I have? And uh, Dr. So-and-so might have been a little overly confident because it's very hard for us to tell just based on clinical symptoms whether you have the flu or not. So that leads to testing frequently if we want to find out. So how do you know when it's appropriate to test if someone has the flu? The times that I like to test, I kind of think like Dr. Kaminskis talks about in one of our other programs, 
is this test going to make a difference in the way I would recommend treating this patient? And so that's usually when I think about, do I need to know, do I need to test? When you do test, the most common way to test would be in the office. We have a swab where you take a swab of the nasal cavity and you can run a test in the office and it will tell you whether... You you really stick a Q-tip down people's nostrils? It's usually up, but I guess it depends. Up. Yeah. Oh, that makes it better. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Yes. And, and, you know, it's it's unpleasant, but the the times when it would be very important would be if we're going to modify treatment because there are some treatments for the flu. Even though they don't respond to antibiotics, there are other things that can be effective. So what months of the year are you usually testing for the flu? I, I usually recommend testing after December. You can have flu earlier than that, but most commonly December to kind of March is the high season in our area. It's different in different parts of the world. The viruses survive better when it's frozen. The virulence would be easier to accomplish when it's frozen, easier to transmit from person to person. However, in like the tropics, you know, in the Caribbean and whatnot, you can get the flu year-round. It's about equivalent. But for us, it's, it's really defined uh, mostly by the winter season. And why is that? I, I think it mostly has to do with how the virus is transmitted. It can live on you know, surfaces even for a couple of days when it's freezing or below freezing. It can really live almost indefinitely. So you know, every shopping cart uh, at the grocery store and every door handle at church uh, that just got touched by 10,000 other people walking in in front of you could be a potential culprit for the flu. So someone doesn't have to sneeze on me or cough on me for me to get the, the flu from them? Yeah, not really. You know, a lot of times people, when they do get sick, they have no idea where they got it. Or at the same time, everybody else has got it at the same time. So it's really hard to blame any individual person. Very good. And I know there have been times a few years back with the H1N1 flu when many dioceses preventing receiving uh, the Eucharist from the cup because of that. Is that true? You know, I I was not aware of that, but that's always been kind of a an interesting question in the back of my mind, you know, because there is definitely some hygiene issues which are minor compared to the blessings of the sacrament. However, you've, you've got to be prudent in these matters, and when you can receive from the host the, the full divinity, body and blood, it, it may well be prudent. I'd totally get behind that for times when you've got an outbreak to really pull back on the on the wine. Very good. So do you yourself receive the flu vaccine? I do. And why do you do that? I think a lot of reasons. Um, for, for me, I know I'm going to see the flu, especially as a healthcare provider. I know I'm going to see the flu in the patients that I care for, and I don't want to pass it on to other patients that I may see. And I really cannot afford to be off work for a week or two if I really get knocked down by the flu. It's something that my my patients wouldn't be able to, you know, be seen in the office. And especially even, even a worse thought, if I had the flu and I passed it on to other people, I could be making them sick. So I think as a healthcare provider, it's, it's an easy decision. So you said be knocked down by the flu. When you said you see a patient in front of you, you often can't tell if it's another virus or the influenza virus. Mm-hmm. How is the course of the disease influenza different from that of an upper respiratory virus like the common cold? Most most of the common colds you can push through if if you really need to. You can maybe take some over-the-counter supplements or medications to help with the symptoms. You get rest, you know, lemon, honey, tea, all of the above to try and help the symptoms. And you really most of the time have to make it three days. That's kind of the worst part. A lot of times the flu is worse, even five to seven days. And frequently some of the worst symptoms, the myalgias, the muscle pains, headaches, and generalized fatigue, much worse with the flu, such that you might be able to push through a small upper respiratory infection. But when you got the flu, it's going to knock you down that even if you wanted to push through, it's going to be very difficult. Most people probably wouldn't be able to. So more people are going to be staying home from work or school with influenza, whether they know what it is or not. They're just not going to have the energy. terrible. Oh, yeah. Very good. So with the influenza, I have heard many people say they have the stomach flu. Ah, yes, the notorious Uh, stomach flu. Yes. Is there any relationship to stomach symptoms, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain? Are they predictive against the flu or of the flu, or what's the story there? Kind of the shortest answer is that they're completely unrelated. 
If they had similarities, they're accidental similarities. Okay. Most, most of the stomach symptoms, we would call them gastrointestinal or GI infections. Mm-hmm. Most of those are from viruses as well but they'd be different viruses than influenza. So influenza would not cause any gastrointestinal symptoms, only respiratory, and most gastrointestinal viruses would not cause any respiratory, although some could. They'd be much more mild than influenza. So if there are intestinal stomach symptoms, it's unlikely to be true influenza. Correct. The stomach flu would be unrelated and would not be prevented by the flu shot. Yeah, I remember my dad growing up so many times, oh, you've got the stomach flu, Tom, better stay home. Yeah, you shouldn't have been outside with no coat on up there in the UP. That that sounds like me. In fact, I used to get into trouble for walking to school with uh, tennis shoes on in the winter instead of boots. I got called home a few times. That's what happens when your parents are teachers and no, you're teachers. Well, anyway, uh, it's time to take a break. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Tom McGovern interviewing Dr. Andrew Lally on influenza and the flu shot on Dr. Doctor. Pulling back the curtain on the mysteries of medicine. Dr. Andrew Mullally with Dr. Tom McGovern on the Dr. Doctor Radio Show on Redeemer Radio. We are a trustworthy medical information source for Catholics. And today that source is delving into the truths of influenza or the flu as well as the flu shot. Now, to continue, you said you can diagnose it. Do you diagnose it in the office with a test or do you have to send something out to a lab? Both and. There's an office test that can be useful, and usually that is the first line of diagnosis, but it's not necessarily the best test. Frequently, the tests in the office, although they can be helpful, they're, they're not extremely efficient. There's many times when we might swab someone and they may have the flu, even if the test reads negative. And so that's something that we're always aware of. And frequently, if someone goes into the hospital or if their symptoms are bad enough to warrant an emergency room visit, we would not perform the rapid test. We would perform the um, blood test effectively or a more in-depth swab test called PCR, which is much more effective than the common rapid test that I, for example, would have in my office. So the more in-depth test, the more accurate test, how long does it take to get the results? Depending on the type of test, maybe 15, 20 minutes with some new machines. Ah, but you don't have that in your office. No, those those tests are very expensive. And so a lot of times going back to, is it going to, first of all, will insurance pay for it so my patient won't get stuck with a big bill? Yes. And then two, is it going to inform the way that I treat the patient? Right now it hasn't added up, but someday if those tests get cheaper, I think it would be very useful to have. So just last season, flu season, how many times do you think you did the rapid test? How many times do you think you ordered the you know, more expensive, more accurate tests? You know, I, in in the setting that I'm working currently, in the office setting, I don't think I ordered the more expensive test at the hospital ever, tell you the truth. Now, when I was working in the emergency room, that's a different story. Ah. That was our first test we went to. We skipped the kind of less expensive, less accurate test. Sure. In the office setting, I would do the less expensive test frequently if it was going to lead to a different treatment plan, especially if we were going to prescribe medicines to try and help them. The, there's medicines available that, that can help with flu symptoms, but they really have to be started ideally within the first two or three days. So if someone presents and it looks like the flu, it's been the first couple of days and I might write for this medication, I'm definitely going to test them. Whereas if somebody's had these symptoms for six days, they're going to get better in a day or two regardless. Sure. Less interested in, no in doing the test. What's the name of the medication or medications that you can use? There's a couple of them, but the the one that has been advertised a lot, and I think it may have been the, the first one recently, was called Tamiflu, yes. Oseltamivir. People are probably still seeing it on the television. It is a medication that can be effective, but we really, at least the way I think about it, I try and reserve it for folks that either are at high risk of a complication, such as the elderly yes. or pregnant women, where if you had the flu, it could pose a significant risk to the health of the baby, or someone who the symptoms are very bad as well. You know, somebody with other comorbid conditions, if someone's a diabetic, for example, they'd be a good candidate for the medicine. What populations should receive the flu vaccine? That's a great question. The, the recommendation is that everyone receive the flu vaccine age six months and older. 
Is that a recent change? Um, not really. There's There are small changes every year. There used to be an exception for egg allergy, and that's mm-hmm. recently been eliminated. Uh, so that was a newer change over the last few years. But for the for the last reasonable bit, at least since I've been following it for, for the last five or ten years, it's been since through childhood up through adulthood. Are there any moral concerns about how the flu vaccine is produced? That's a great question. Not not to the extent that the other vaccines present. The the most common ethical concern about vaccines are the ones that are derived from the aborted fetal cell lines. Right. And at least currently in America, those are not being used to produce the flu shot. Good. They they may be in other parts of the world. Other. I'm I'm not. Uh, up on all of that necessarily, but the ones that are used in America, they have some that are made from eggs. They have some non-egg types that are made from a dog's kidney cell, um, <laughs> but no aborted fetal cells, which is really nice. So we, we don't have to worry about that ethical component. Excellent. Why is it, unlike so many other diseases, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, why do we have to receive this vaccine every single year? That's a great question. There's There's a couple of reasons. First reason is that the flu changes every year. We alluded to that at the beginning when you had mentioned the the RNA especially. We have in our bodies mechanisms so that when our cells are replicating, if there's a mistake made, there's... uh, So cells replicating means they're making more copies of themselves? Correct. As as we're making new cells, when there's a mistake made, there's an organelle that can go by and fix that mistake. And that's why we usually only have two arms and one head and things of that nature. We're not sprouting loads of new and different changes. Viruses are very different. Their life cycle is so much shorter, so they replicate much more quickly. And in addition to that, they don't have the repair mechanisms that we do. So they're much less sophisticated, but by the the sheer volume of number of times that they replicate and the number of mutations, they actually undergo something called a genetic drift, where the genetic code that took effect last year would be very different potentially from the one this year just by random chance. So because they're making so many millions of copies of themselves so frequently, what they're made of, their their DNA chemistry changes, and it can change daily. Yes, it, it can change, and it, it changes something on the order of maybe 10 or 100-fold times in, in even just a couple of days. If you just tuned in, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio with Dr. Andrew Mullally being interviewed by me, Dr. Tom McGovern. On the flu and the flu vaccine, we discuss health matters because people matter. So the flu vaccine comes out every year. How effective is it at preventing cases of influenza? That's a great question. It's not awesome, tell you the truth. It's, it's not as good as the other vaccines. Every year they have to look ahead and anticipate what the flu is going to look like because of that antigenic drift. When we guess or I shouldn't say guess. It's anticipated. I mean, it's it's technical and scientific so that it can be predicted better than average guessing. But when we get it really good, we're about 40 to 60%. So still half the time, you don't receive immunity. On years when we miss the mark, it's much less than that. And that is for the standard inactivated dead flu virus that is injected. Yes. There's other types of flu shots too. The nasal one, the nasal one, that's kind of an embarrassment. I mean, on the years we predicted it well, it was 20% effective. Four out of five people who got the, the nose vaccine were going to get zero protection. So no immunity. And of the 20% who got protection, might some of them have just gotten milder cases of the flu? Precisely. And that's one of the reasons why the FDA removed that for this year. And so they said, you guys got to go back to the drawing board. I mean, even for the flu shot, that's just abysmal. What are my risks of not getting vaccinated? You know, the the risks, you know, namely, number one, you could get the flu if you're exposed. And I, there's a decent chance of that, depending on where you live and your exposure rates. Also, I think one of the big risks would not necessarily be for you, but it'd be for your loved ones, for your young child who has an immature immune system, for a grandma who you see on Saturdays in the nursing home. If, you know, most of the people who die from the flu, there's a, there's a huge morbidity and mortality with the flu. Every year, there's at least between 140,000 and 700,000 people hospitalized, and between 12,000 and 56,000 people die every year from the flu. It's not from the flu virus itself most of the time. It's for people who are not, they don't have a good immune system, mostly the elderly and the young, they get a secondary problem, like a secondary pneumonia. So when you don't get the vaccine, even if it's just a a week off of work and feeling really sick, if you give it to grandma, she gets a pneumonia, she passes away. And so really, 
that's part, I think, of the considerations for vaccines. It's not necessarily about me. One of the things that we have, especially in the, the Catholic tradition, is this idea of social justice and this idea of solidarity, not only with the poor, but also with the sick and the disabled. Some of these people really need our help and need our immunity to help protect them. So if I get the flu shot and I don't give it to grandma and she doesn't get pneumonia and die, that is a critical benefit of getting the vaccine far more than me getting sick or not sick for a week. So, and that's what I've heard some physicians talk about, a duty to vaccinate. You know, it's definitely something that I, I've found most people to, to consider very controversial, but I do think we have to examine this from an ethical point of view. There's loads of discussion about the pros and cons and the scientific studies and the numbers, but when you get back down to kind of the most basic ethical level, you know, you have to think about yourself, but you also have to think about others, the people around you, and we do have a duty to them. Just as, you know, Pope Francis talks about our duty to protect the environment, we also have a duty to protect the other common goods, the health of people, the health of our society. And so that's something that I think is not talked about enough, and we, we should definitely think about that. And you're right. That is one of the four pillars of Catholic social teaching, uh, solidarity, in which we're looking out for the good of our brothers and sisters. And this is one concrete way we do it. It is open to uh, discussion and debate, I know, among many uh, faithful Catholics. What are some of the touch-and-go situations you've had with some patients you've seen who have gotten influenza? You know, the things that always stick out in your mind are the people who really get worse quickly because of the disease. It's it's not the token 35-year-old uh, man or woman who gets the flu, stays home for a week, goes back to work. A lot of times those don't have a great mortality, although it is a huge drain on the economy at large, but the people that you remember are the people who end up going to the hospital and suffering complications. For example, we did talk about this idea of grandma in the nursing home. There's so many people who really cannot mount an adequate response, and that's why we do even have different flu shots for the, the elderly. For standard dosage, for younger folks, we have a certain dose, and for the elderly, we actually have four times that dose uh. because it takes a larger vaccine to stimulate response because even the small dose doesn't stimulate their body to make antibodies. And that's one of the reasons, you know, an example of how their immune system is so much weaker and why they suffer the consequences. And are there any surprising things you learned about the flu in your training or in your experience with patients in the emergency room? You know, I guess there's, there's a couple things that I always think about. One of the things that people ask me is, how quickly will it work? The flu shot usually comes out in October yes. every year, and they wonder, if do I need to get it now? Can I wait till we're getting closer to flu season? The answer is it usually takes about two weeks to work. Okay. Um, so that's one thing that you want to plan on. So really, the earlier, the better, because frequently, I know my office every year runs out of flu shots at different times, and it's because, you know, after a period of time, it's very hard to get more supply. So that's that's one of the things that I learned. And then the, the other thing that I've learned is a lot of the concerns folks have. Everybody, you know, one, one of the things that I've, I've learned, especially from dealing with parents of pediatric patients, I enjoy a large pediatric uh, presence in my p- practice. And one of their concerns is I just want to do what's best for my kid. You know, if I'm going to be putting my kid at risk, I don't want to do that. And so it, it's a cost-benefit ratio. And so that's where a lot of the concerns with the flu shots come up. Have your children all received the flu shot? In the past, yes, this year, I'm, I'm dragging my feet at the time this was recorded, um, but uh, we, we will be doing that. I just got mine last week, so it's still hot off the press at the time of recording. And I just uh, gave it to the rest of my family. Uh, I do the same thing. Is there anything else you think people should know about the flu that we haven't discussed? You know, the, the biggest thing I would recommend is when you read about things that are concerning, run it by your doctor. Um, there, there's a lot of information out there. Some of it's good, a lot of it's not. And so if you have a specific question, talk to somebody you trust. And if you can't find somebody you trust, I would be happy to help. Thank you, Dr. Andrew Mullally. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from Redeemer Radio, Northeast Indiana's on-air family of faith. Doctor, discussing health matters because people matter with Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Tom McGovern. Tom, can we get the answer to that trivia question? 
The question was, if you have a history of an allergy to penicillin, does that mean you should never again receive penicillin or an antibiotic related to it? And the answer is... General. False. Ooh. You may receive penicillin again. And this comes from the Choosing Wisely program. The American Board of Internal Medicine put together this program asking many different specialties to come up with a list of things they would like patients and physicians to know, things they should never do and things they should always do if possible. And so here the purpose is that there are so many new bacteria coming out becoming resistant to so many antibiotics. And so if this is happening, they don't want people to overuse the non-penicillin antibiotics, which are usually more expensive, and kill more bacteria than the penicillin and other antibiotics. They want to use the simpler, less expensive ones first, which makes sense. And studies show that about 10% of the population will say they're allergic to penicillin. But when they actually look at these people, 90% of them actually are not allergic to penicillin. I, be, I believe that, actually, because I, I have a lot of folks that are allergic, you know, in their chart. And when probed further, there's usually a story that sounds less like an allergy and more like something else. Uh, yeah, sometimes it's a rash. And maybe it was a rash to the actual infection they had because many viruses, many bacteria cause rashes. And guess what? They were taking an antibiotic at the time. Oh, it must be. I think of that classic strep throat rash, right? Ooh, that's a beautiful one. Yes. And, you know, somebody, and I've, I have this happen not uncommonly where we treat somebody for strep throat. It's going great, going great. Four or five days in, there's a rash. Yes. Is it the amoxicillin or was it the strep throat? And so a lot of times we, we get to talk through those situations. But if they don't make the call, it's a rash. That's an allergy, right? It's true they were on an antibiotic. It's true they had a rash. And therefore, since these two things were true and happened at the same time, they think one caused the other. In truth, it may not have. But you don't know for sure. So even true penicillin allergies will reduce over time. So even if you were allergic to it at one point in life, later on, you may well not be. And so using some of these less expensive antibiotics will reduce medical costs and might prevent the need for hospital stays because you developed an infection with a bacteria that's resistant to the other antibiotics. So sometimes what should be done is there are various tests that your physician can order to see if you truly are allergic to penicillin. Do you ever order those or do you send people to a, an allergist? You know, when the occasion arises, I would definitely order them. But to be honest, I guess it doesn't come up that much because right now we're blessed with having a lot of antibiotic choices. But yes. as you've alluded to, you know, those are getting fewer and fewer. I, I read something recently where, you know, maybe we've had less than, I forget what percentage, 1% of the antibiotics that we use are invented in the last 30 years. All the antibiotics we have are old. We're not, yes. we're not inventing new antibiotics. So as we burn through these there's a very legitimate concern that we're going to be without the ability to treat infections yes. if we're just using them willy-nilly. So, Which brings up another point that I think is important for, for patients to know. And, and oftentimes, if a patient goes to a physician, they want treatment for what they came in with. And they don't want to hear that an over-the-counter medicine will work and that an antibiotic is unnecessary. Have you ever in your wildest dreams thought that that would happen in a visit, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I, ha I have the chance to have such polar opposite visits. I've got folks coming in that says, Doc, I'm here for my antibiotic. I said, okay, okay, tell, tell me why you think you need one. And then I've got other people that I say, I'm afraid you're going to need to go to the ER if we don't start this antibiotic. Please start it, you know. And so it's it's definitely something that you, you tease out with folks. But I think that's the benefit of talking to people, you know, where sometimes doctors have the temptation of getting moving too quickly. And if you don't sit down and discuss it with people, everybody's going to be dissatisfied. The doc's going to be frustrated. The patient's going to say they obviously don't want me to get better. That's not really the case. I think it's just an uh, opportunity for more communication. You know, Andrew, what you just said about the polar opposite patients brings up something we were talking about recently, and, and that is a, a book of the Old Testament that Catholics are fortunate to have, and it's the book of Sirach. And in the book of Sirach, chapter 38, there is a beautiful a series of verses about the physician and about medicine. 
So in verse 4 of Sirach 38, it says, The Lord created medicines from the earth, and a sensible man will not despise them. So sometimes medicines are necessary. Prayer might be necessary too, but sometimes God wants to heal us. Well, and most medicines are from natural sources, right? Exactly. Nearly all, I can't think if there might be one antibiotic that was synthetic, but most of them are from funguses or different algae and, you know, penicillin was from the bread mold. Exactly. has heard that story. Yes. So I I think that we've got to be careful not to write stuff off just because it comes in a pill form. You could scrape the mold off the bread and do the same thing, but I just want to make it easier for you. I I would prefer the pill over the, the mold. So now, Andrew, why don't we turn to some of our listener questions that have been emailed in? I, I think I love this segment because I feel like I'm staying in touch with the listeners. You know, if, if anybody ever does have a question, feel free to email us. We'll have something on the website that you can input your questions, and that will give you an opportunity to, to interact with the show. We'd love to answer them on air. Or you can even call Redeemer Radio. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally for Dr. Doctor, pulling back the curtain on the mysteries of medicine. So, Andrew, a question that might take up the rest of this evening into tomorrow, but we only have about five and a half minutes left. Have you ever had to or been tempted to or been asked to compromise your Catholic faith in your role as a physician? Wow, that is a great question. Got to think about how to even answer that. I'd like to say the short answer is no, but I've, I'm also somebody who's very blessed in that regard. I grew up in the church. Many people have an interesting story, and my faith journey has not been interesting. I've been blessed to been born <laughs> Catholic by parents that are married and love each other and taught me the faith, and I went to a Catholic college where I grew to understand the faith more. So I've always had that in my mind and at the forefront. So. I've been lucky to be thinking about this through my whole medical training. So I've tried my best not to compromise any of my beliefs. However, that's easier said than done. And there's so many opportunities where they do ask, if not require or subtly demand, uh, you know, people to really leave the faith at the doorstep. And that's something we see in all aspects of society from people getting interviewed to be judges on the national circuit to people who are up for college professorships or even people who are trying to get into med school. You have to go through an interview process. And at any point through really college, medical school, residency, the tens, maybe even hundreds of people who are your boss at one time or another, anybody can torpedo your entire career. And then you're going back to whatever plan B was with all the medical school debt you have. So especially <laughs> yes. in training, you you say your prayers, and I definitely spent a lot of time walking on eggshells. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm really happy to be in a Catholic medical practice now where I can live my faith and, and be proud of it, which I always have been. But there's there's so many opportunities to compromise, and especially in training when it comes up to the issues of the beginning of life with abortion and birth control and all the way to the end of life with physician-assisted suicide, which is something that, you know, 50 years ago, people probably would have laughed at you, but now it's something that holds the popular opinion among people in many places, and it's legal in many states. And then everything in between from, you know, really when you remove God or even ethics or this idea of a universal truth, there's really nothing to, to moor yourself to Ethically, people talk about medical ethics. When when I was in training, they don't talk about the dignity of the human person anymore. That's what Hippocrates had, Aristotle, everybody. Now they talk about autonomy, which it's really a poor substitute because if you can't make yourself heard or if the guy sitting next to you is louder than you, he's more autonomous. He deserves more respect. Right. It's you know? what I call the vending machine approach to being a physician. You know, you put your nickel into the physician vending machine and he or she does what you want. Something might pop out, but it's not going to be satisfying. No. How many of us want our physicians to do whatever you want them to do, even if they think it's wrong? I don't think a lot of people really want a physician like that. Well, and if if you've got somebody who's going to compromise on their personal values, 
<laughs> well, well, how are they going to treat your values? How right? You know, I Very mean, good. you, you got to think about this. If if there is no ultimate truth or things that you have to do, no matter what, why why are you going to do the right thing for this patient? You know, I, you become a technician and not not really a yes. professional. Yes, exactly. Uh, I was on a a rotation once. I won't say where or what subject, but we had a talk on medical ethics, and the talk was one sentence long. Literally, this one-hour spot, one sentence long. And the, the physician giving it said, if it's legal, it's ethical. If it's illegal, it's unethical. And that was the end of the lecture. I think there was a semicolon in there to make it one sentence. But uh, I was just horrified when I heard this. That's, I mean, it's popular opinion drives morality. We're, we're living in a world that I've, I've heard termed volunteerism. I will it. Therefore, that's the highest good. You know, whatever I want is what matters. It really gets tough because when somebody else wants something different than what you want, there's there's no referee or yardstick to tell who really has the right of way or what is the best way to act. And so I think when you unmoor yourself from any ethical underpinnings, you're not going to have a good doctor. You might have a good vending machine. You might have a good textbook. Uh, you might even have somebody that can do all the math to get the right doses. But when you want to know what's the best thing to do, especially when a patient has ethical opinions, how are you going to how are you going to even be able to communicate with somebody who's got no ethical opinions? It's it's going to be it's going to be over like this show. And with that segue, thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor, where Catholic doctors discuss medical matters because people matter. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally. Thank you guys so much for listening. We were happy to have you, and may God bless you with good health until we talk again. I was raised a Catholic and went to church every Sunday faithfully. I met a boy and he was non-Catholic, so I left the church to be with him. When I was away from church, I yearned to be home. What brought me back was my longing for the Eucharist. The Eucharist fills me with a spirit that you can't find anywhere else. I have a peace when I walk through the doors of the Catholic Church, like that's where I belong. We invite you to take another look at the Catholic Church. Visit catholicscomehome.org today.